Welcome to the 328th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Michael Shine, author of The Hype Handbook, 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers. And listen as Michael discusses how these concepts and the concept of hype can apply to writing, book publishing, and authors. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Michael F. Shine, author of The Hype Handbook, 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers. Michael, welcome to the podcast. It is a real pleasure to be here, Jeff. Great. Well, can you tell us the impetus and backstory on why you decided to write your new book, The Hype Handbook? Sure. It's it's a it's a bit of a mouthful this story. So cut me off if it gets too long. You know, I uh, I had always wanted to be a writer, and um, I now own a marketing agency, but that was never the plan. I never wanted to be involved in business in any way. And I wanted to write novels, which is why I'm so excited to be here. I'm in really great company. I I, uh, wanted to play in bands and write songs. And after college, I did. I I played in a band and we're very theatrical. And we used to raise all kinds of antics and mischief to get attention. So we got ourselves on to Showtime at the Apollo because we knew we would be booed off. So that got us a lot of coverage. Um, I used to dress as a nun on stage, which got us on the cover of New York Press. So I, 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 we used to sell out clubs and have a little bit of success, considering that I'm not a very good singer. And eventually, though, it didn't work out. And I got a corporate job. And I was there for you know years until I was very miserable. And I eventually left. And I became a, a freelance copywriter. And I figured that because I was a good writer, you know, business would just kind of drop in my lap and I would have a new career. And that didn't happen at all. I I had about a year's worth of savings. I burned through it all. I was in really bad financial shape. I had an infant at home. And so after reading every traditional sales and marketing book and getting nothing out of it that actually turned into money, meaning a way to make a living, I, I thought back in desperation to when I was in that band and how we never thought of it as marketing, but we used to just sort of raise a ruckus and do creative things to get attention. And I, I said to myself, you know, is there something there? You know, maybe the best marketers aren't really marketers. Maybe there are these kind of benevolent mischief makers and, and even not so benevolent mischief makers. So I um, started to do those sorts of things, but in the business, so in the business world. So there's a prominent internet guru named Gary Vaynerchuk, which is certainly very, he's a very well-known guy on a lot of the podcasts I do, maybe not this one, but I called him out in print. I I wrote an article called why Gary Vaynerchuk is flat out wrong. And I, I, it wasn't made up. I didn't insult him, but I, I, I called out his ideas and he responded to me directly and, um, on video and was, aggravated and all his fans started blowing up my phone and insulting me. And before long, I had 50 new, I had 50 new Twitter followers in a half hour. And soon after that, I got my biggest client to date and my career kicked off. So I became a successful copywriter. From there, I started a marketing agency. I, I, I still run that. 
And I just realized that there's this realistic form of driving emotion around your ideas and your products and your art that most people either don't want to or don't have the knowledge to tap into. And I call it hype instead of marketing, which I define as any activity, positive or negative, that drives a lot of attention to get people to do what you want them to do. And I just thought it, especially with what's been going on in the political world and in, in, in the cultural world, I just felt that it was very important to put some of these tools in the hands of the good guys out there doing great work um, instead of the people who come to it a little more naturally. So I wrote a book. Well, can you give us examples in the last couple of years of people or companies that you think have managed to elevate their visibility by using some of the hype techniques that you write about in your book? Yeah, I mean, I think the elephant in the room is Donald Trump, right? I mean, there's no getting around that. What he might be competent at or not competent at in other realms, the guy is the best hype artist uh, in the world. And it's funny, that was another impetus for writing the book. I read all of these weird books on crowd psychology. And I was reading one called The Crowd by Gustave Le Bon, which was written in, nine, in no, 1895, which basically showed this was this guy trying to figure out why crowds behaved so irrationally. And I was watching one of the earliest primary debates and looking at this book at the same time. And the book would say things like, crowds respond well to vague language that doesn't really have any real meaning. It's That's future focused, you know, make America great again. Uh, prestige is really important for crowds to see external signifiers of prestige when there's no prestige money will do. And I remember thinking very early on that he would win when, when few of my friends did. So that's one example. Um, but if you're not inclined in that direction, this is a very businessy example, but, um, there's a, a company called Basecamp, which is, uh, not a very, flashy company. They they have a project management software tool. And the thing about now, stay with me here. This is, you know, inside baseball stuff. But in, in that world, in project management software, which is software that helps companies run their complicated projects, as, as you would imagine, what, what typically happens is that you're supposed to add more features and functions. If the client wants you to add more doohickeys and more functionality, you just run and do it. And that's just the way it's done. And these two guys who started this company basically said, no, we're going to create a project management software that's notoriously simple. And if clients tell us to add anything to it, we're not going to, because that's what's right for them. But instead of just talking about their software, they basically picked a fight with the way things were normally done in the business world. So they would write books about how there should be a four-day work week and how simplicity is key and fire your workaholics and people are too complicated. And as a result, they built this real sort of cult around themselves of a new way of working and their software became the de facto tool for that. So you just see it all the time in all kinds of guises. Sure. Well, I know that a lot of people who listen to this podcast are aspiring writers or they have already self-published a book on Kindle or Nook. If someone is listening and and that describes them and they're struggling to get attention or sales for their uh, books, what are some things that they could do using your hype handbook to get more attention? 
So first of all, I want to say one of the reasons I was so excited about coming on this show, because I've been on a lot of podcasts in in trying to spread the word about this book, and a lot of them have been great. But I was really excited about this show because I, I still think of myself as a writer first. I wanted to be a novelist for a long time. I still write fiction. And, um, y- you know, I really, if, 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 if authors could use these tactics to get the word out about their books, that would probably make me happier than any audience out there using this stuff. And, you know, sadly, because I have a lot of writer friends, I will often hear writers really reject the mar- idea of marketing in general, let alone hype. I mean, you'll you'll talk to certain really talented book writers and they'll say, eh, you know, I know I have to do this thing, but I just don't take to it that easily. And I would say the first thing is to adopt a change in mindset. And I'm not going to say what most people say, just get open to marketing. What I'm going to say is that If you can think of these activities that I call hype as adding color to the art itself, that goes a long way. So like I think back to the Blair Witch Project, which um, I might have been in either high school or college when that came out. And what was so cool about that was that there was no division between the art itself, the movie and the marketing. The, The movie was if the movie had come out with a traditional marketing campaign it would have been a worse movie because what happened was it was when the internet was brand new as far or the web anyway, it was brand new. And there was all this stuff about, you know, wow, you know, they've got this footage. You would just hear these rumors. There's this footage of these kids who got lost in the, in the forest and they thought they saw a witch. And you would say, Oh, that's, that can't be true. No, no, no. It's really true. And Oh my gosh, look at this website. There's this clip. And it was like, the whole thing was a game. And then when you got to the movie, it was kind of just the climax of this thing you had been experiencing. And I think about David Bowie, who his his hype was part of his art. He didn't just get up there and strum guitars or Andy Warhol. So I would say the first thing is to adopt that mindset. If you can think of kind of put a put a little smile on your face and think of creating benevolent mischief about your product, letting people in on it. That goes a long way. As for specific tactics, you know, one one idea is um what I call being a trickster. So, a lot of times when people are first starting out and don't have traditional sort of access to traditional channels, they engage in what I call tricksterism. So like in various mythologies, there's always this character like Loki or Coyote in Native American myths who plays kind of pranks on the world at large. And they're usually the God that also creates art. So there's this marketer who's known for marketing books named Ryan Holiday. And he marketed a book for Tucker Max. Now, Tucker Max was a guy who wrote pretty offensive books, really. I mean, they were, they were, one was called, I hope they serve beer in hell. It was just his exploits sort of like, you know, hooking up with women and drinking a lot, but they were making a movie of the book and Ryan holiday, um, you know, went out, he got, he hired, he bought a billboard 
went out late at night, spray painted on the billboard, something like sexist pig. And then under a fake email account reported the um, news to a feminist website. And before long, it spread everywhere. And real feminists were defacing Tucker Max billboards everywhere. And the movie, you know, did great. So I would say if, depending on what your book is, if you can find a community who might be irrationally offended or even rationally offended by the messages in your book, if you can think of just sort of a playful sort of prank, if you can make news instead of expecting people to cover your book, that's a really good way, at least in the early stages, to, you know, bring attention to your stuff while adding a little bit of color to the world in the process. Sure. Well, with the deluge of digital media and social media, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Twitter, and so much others, it's easy uh, to shout into the void given how much content is created on a daily basis. Have you factored in this ever-increasing digital media in the hype strategies that you write about in your book? Yeah, it's a great question because I think a lot of people really do go wrong here. When they think of hyping up their work, hyping up their book, whatever it is, they just sort of do the activity. So they they blog and they just write blog posts and then they wonder why no one's paying attention or they tweet or whatever. And the thing is, the Internet, to your point, is about as close to infinite as anything that humankind has ever created. However, what's also great about the internet is that you can find a micro community and become famous in that micro community. So uh, an activity I used to do, we, when we would work with a new client, we would look, we would go to their industry because it was usually business clients. And we would look at every blog, podcast, YouTube channel, whatever, in that particular niche. And then we would go through and we would like see how frequently other blogs and podcasts were mentioned. And the ones that had the most check marks, the ones that got mentioned the most, and there were sometimes usually between 15 and 45 of them, that was your universe. Those were the Oprahs of your industry. I call them mini Oprahs. So if you can figure out what's your little audience that would be most receptive to your book, at least in the beginning, it's a lot easier to blitz that niche and make it look like you're everywhere at once than it is to just go out into the internet. And, and here's another hype trick that that is really, I think, effective for marketing books, especially if you don't have the, um, the type of book or, or the stomach for being a trickster. If you can find those 15 to 30 to 40 mini Oprahs in your niche. And these are not Oprahs. We're all trying to get on Oprah as authors, but that's really tough to do. But it's not so tough to connect with a mini Oprah. If you can find those mini Oprahs, those industry, you know, uh, celebrities or and not industry celebrities, but maybe micro genre celebrities, vampire, paranormal, romance fiction, mini Oprah's, the ones who write about, blog about, podcast about that. It's very easy to make friends with those people. You know, go on social media and monitor them for a while. And once you see something human that you can connect about, that's not about trying to get something from them, connect with them, become their friend. 
And then when it's time to spread the word, it's it's a lot easier to get someone who already has a hundred thousand person following to spread the word about your book than it is to build those readers one by one. You'll really accelerate your process doing that. Yeah, that's really great advice. Um, in the subtitle of your book, you mentioned cult leaders. Some people recall from a discussion of cults, uh, obviously because of some of the the violence and uh, and behavior that's associated with some cults. Personally, I'm fascinated by cults. Recently, I watched the Heaven's Gate documentary as well as a documentary about Nexium. What are hype techniques from cult leaders that people can adopt without doing harm? So first of all, I cannot emphasize to you enough that if I want to convince any, if there's something with this book that I care the most about convincing people of, it's that these strategies are devoid of moral content. They're not moral or immoral. They're often used by immoral people because immoral people often are better at seeing the world the way it really is. And part of that is because they don't let emotion get in the way because they're psychopaths, whatever it is. But human beings are swayed by the same stimuli, no matter whether it's for something good or something bad. So when I talk about cults, I'm doing that to show you these principles in action, but they can absolutely be repurposed to market something like an awesome novel. Um, And to give you an example of that and also show you a tactic that can be um, really used, uh, you know, maybe not so much in promoting the book itself, but in getting, you know, persuading people who are important for your career to help you out or do what you need them to do. So I'm going to tell you right now about the absolute worst person that I that I talk about in the book. And that's Charles Manson. Right. Horrible, horrible human being. Um, he, before he became notorious, he was in prison, uh, for some car theft charge. And he was a pimp as well, low, low level criminal in jail. And he saw that they were offering a course on the Dale Carnegie, um, you know, stuff, the how to win friends and, and influence people program. And he took that course and he became their top student. And the module that uh, that he was the most into was something called uh, make the other fellow feel like the idea is his, which basically means that you can never tell someone what to do. If you want them to go along with your ideas, you have to like use questions to make them feel like it's their idea. And so when he emerged and he kind of seduced these young middle class hippie kids to do horrible acts, he would never tell them, let's go murder a bunch of celebrities. He would say things like, you know, Guys, the, the, I don't know what language he used, but the establishment is really going too far these days. What do you think about it? And he would listen to their proposed solutions and then say, well, I don't know about that. What do you think about this? And he knew exactly where he wanted them to go. But by the time they were done, they would propose doing these awful things after hours of this stuff. And it felt like they came up with it. Now, I bring that up because Warren Buffett who, as far as finance goes, is, is most people would say is a pretty beneficial force um, in the business world. He has one diploma framed on his wall, and that's the Dale Carnegie Institute. He took the ex- exact same course material and used it to build a business which has employed thousands and thousands of people, which has steered people away from bad investing decisions and fundamental investing, you know, not steered people away from bubbles. So 
that just gives you an example of how malleable, how how these concepts are what these concepts are, and they can be applied for such evil and so much good and everything in between. Sure. Well, your book offers 12 hype strategies. Out of the 12, do you have a particular favorite? I don't know that I have a favorite because they really work in concert. There are stories that I find the most entertaining and there are strategies that I've used probably more than, than others. And I can talk about any of that, but I think, I think they really layer well on top of each other. Well, when you were researching the book, was there a particular hype artist that fascinated you more than others? Yeah, sure. So, um, there, there are a few there's, um, there, there's one guy that I think is really fascinating named Edward Bernays. So Edward Bernays was Sigmund Freud's nephew, and he's known as the father of public relations. He invented the term public relations. And Time magazine, in an article, once called him the most significant individual of the 20th century that is not known by most people. So this guy, and I'm not a big conspiracy theory guy, but this guy makes you second guess yourself. He is responsible almost single-handedly for making it not a taboo for women to smoke in the, in the twenties. He, he, he put together a a thing called torches for Liberty where uh, suffragettes and um, you know, people in the early feminist movement would light up cigarettes to show that they couldn't, that they were free women. And he did that for lucky strike. Uh, he engineered a coup in Guatemala on behalf of the United fruit company. And the story that I think is the most entertaining and interesting is um, he. So before the twenties, Americans didn't typically eat bacon for breakfast. Bacon and eggs weren't really the, the quintessential breakfast that they are today. And Edward Bernays' client was Beechnut, which was a major pork producer, especially at the time. And so Edward Bernays, speaking to my older, um, earlier in the interview, my my idea about building a, a, a network underneath the surface, he had this connection with this very powerful and influential physician. And he somehow got this guy to commission a quote unquote study which the doctor, the influential doctor distributed to 5,000 physicians. And it said that bacon is the perfect breakfast food from a health perspective because it replaces the energy you lose during sleep. So without any advertising, every doctor in America started recommending bacon to their patients and, you know, a tradition was born. So that guy was fascinating to me. That's a great story. Um, if someone hasn't ever worked in sales or marketing and they're listening to this, as we said before, maybe a fiction writer who's written a novel, and this person is someone who kind of loathes the tactics of of the worst kind of salespeople like car salesmen, for example, is there a way for that person to feel more comfortable with using hype tactics? I mean, I can't speak for other people. Um, I, I think some people have their minds made up, but I can give you my own shift in perspective and, and we can go from there. So the first thing is I think car salesmen and straight ahead salesmen like that, especially in the internet era are bad salespeople. 
I mean, you'll see these car salesmen, you walk into, or mattress salesmen, you walk into a room uh, knowing exactly what the factory paid for the car because of the internet, and they'll try to sell you the way they did in 1974. So that's just inflexibility and, and bad salesmanship. To me, salesmanship and marketing is if you have a product or an idea that can actually make people's lives better and they don't know about it, how do you get them excited about it? So I was terrible at sales and marketing. It wasn't like I was this natural salesperson or marketer. You know, I I had some of those same ideas, in fact. I mean, when I played with the band and you would ask me, do I like sales? Would I want a sales role or a marketing role? I would say, no way. I mean, that's horrible, you know? However, I was doing marketing, quote unquote, all day long. When I mischievously got us onto a show that I knew we would be booed off because I knew we would get attention, or when I got all of the cool kids on the Lower East Side to invite all of their friends to sell out Arlene's Grocery on a Wednesday night and then promoted that to the press as we're a popular new band, that was, I guess, what a lot of people would call marketing. And that's why I use the word hype, because in hip hop, there's a hype man who um, is usually part of the group. They rap, but they're also in charge of the street teams, you know, putting the Wu-Tang stickers all over town, whatever. They're in charge of getting the crowd worked up. And and no one in in that community finds that distasteful in the hip hop world. And I think maybe that's because of its origins. It comes from you know, the South Bronx, which was very poor and disadvantaged. And you didn't have the luxury to say, I don't like sales and marketing. It was, we're going to do whatever we have to do to get an audience for this, for our art. And we're going to have fun doing it. And we're going to make sure the audience has fun doing it. So that's the perspective I have. That's why I call it hype instead of sales. Ultimately, you just have to decide if you're comfortable with that. If you're not, that's 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 up to you, and that's cool. Um, you probably will have a hard, harder time being successful. Your life will be a little more like a lottery, hoping someone chooses you. And I don't know. I find that very stressful. Sure. Well, you mentioned your fiction writing earlier. Are you still writing fiction? I am. I um, you know, I when I worked at my corporate job, I got up every morning at five a.m. as you know the old saw goes. And I would write fiction. And people used to say to me, you're so disciplined. And I wasn't. It was just like the only hour of the day that I could stand. <laughs> and then um, when I was all into that, I read an article in Writer's Digest that actually told me about the kind of copywriting I ended up doing. So that was fortuitous. However, when I started my business, I, I had an infant as well. And I stopped writing fiction for like two or three years. And then I got interested in nonfiction for the first time and had fun with it. And I was writing these articles on this concept for for Forbes and Fortune and Psychology Today. Um, but all that time, I would come back to fiction. And um, I just started realizing that it's a practice that really brings me a lot of joy. And I want to go there one day. So I actually um, don't want to talk too much about it because it's so early stage and we'll see what happens. But I started writing a novel and I'm feeling pretty good about it. So I do it first thing for about an hour and then go on with the rest of my day. That's great. Well, what fiction or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? And also, um, after you tell us that, you might want to tell the listeners about your email list where you recommend books. Sure. Um, This is fun. I don't normally get to talk about this, especially fiction. Um, I recently discovered, believe it or not, Kazuo Ishiguro, who I 
uh, have really liked. So I tore through a couple of his books, one after the other, uh, Remains of the Day, which I didn't think I would like, not my typical thing, and I loved it. Um, Never Let Me Go, Artist of a Floating World, and The Buried Giant, which I loved. I started The Unconsoled, and I'm having a hard time getting through that one. Uh, but, you know, he's great. There's an art. There's a writer named Victor Laval, who I love. Have you heard of him at all? I have not. Nope. Yeah, he's um, he's great. He's he's this guy from Queens. Um, his mother, I think, is African, grew up in Queens, got an MFA, tried, wrote his first book, kind of literary fiction. And then he realized that, you know, he had lost a big part of himself. He was a big Stephen King fan and Shirley Jackson fan. And he sort of combined his two interests in the later book. So it's sort of this like almost postmodern horror slash like. Wow, that sounds amazing. I'll have to yeah, check that out. He's great. Yeah, Victor Laval. But I don't like his first book, the one, the first two, but the one that are more like flat literary, straight literary fiction. There's one called The Changeling that's great. The Devil in Silver is great. Um, yeah, I'm trying to focus on the books that like are really the fun books. You know, I read all of these, you know, crowd psychology books too, that are, that are also fun in a different way, but I know that the crowd here is, is a crowd of real readers. Um, I started a book recently called Borges and me, which is really fun. So apparently this guy, um, this novelist, I don't know his name, Jay Parisi or something. He, when he was 21 years old, sort of evading the draft by living in Scotland, his friend, who was a poet, told him to watch after this South American writer. This was in the 60s for a week and in, in Scotland. And they did a road trip together. And it was Jorge Luis Borges, who he had never heard of. <laughs> you know? So he basically spent a week with like Latin America's greatest writer, like in the 60s, traveling around Scotland. And um, so that's fun. So I'm always reading. That's great. So do you want to tell us about the email list that you do of recommended books? Yeah, no, thank you for that. So I, I um, started to realize that I'm always reading for my work as well as for pleasure. And I read every sales and marketing book that was out there and none of them really helped me all that much at all. And I started reading more sort of bizarre and esoteric books and finding that not only were they more fun to read, but they helped me figure out all these concepts we've been talking about today. Um, all, uh, biographies of really crazy hype artists, crazy old crowd psychology books and what have you. So it's gone from being just uh, recommendations I send out once in a while to a real book club. I mean, we exchange emails and it, it, it's, it's become really a big part of what I do and a big community. Um, and, and we have a lot of fun with it. Totally free. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's just, um, just become a pleasure to be involved with. And so it's called the hype book club and it's, it's hypereads.com slash list, which I don't know if you're putting it in the show notes. I know that's a bit of a mouthful. But, sure. Uh, <clears throat> I'll, I'll add it to the show notes. That's fine. Yeah. So where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your book, the high pan book? Sure. Thanks for asking that. Well, certainly you know, we're in this weird time where we're all sort of locked indoors or at least semi-locked indoors. So the easiest thing is to go to your online bookseller of choice. There's the Amazons and Barnes and Nobles and then some of the other sites that are that, that focus on smaller stores. If your local bookstore is carrying it, certainly um, 
get it there or ask them to carry it. In terms of me, I, I, you know, um, probably less applicable to, to, to the fiction reader, but my company is microfamemedia.com. So you might want to check that out. And then the book list. Oh, also, I have my own website these days. I forgot because I never had one because it was always about the business. But I have an author page, which is uh, michaelfshine.com, spelled S-C-H-E-I-N. So there's some fun stuff on there as well. Great, great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Michael F. Shine, author of The Hype Handbook, 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers. The book is on sale now or will be on sale in early January. What's the exact date? Yeah, it's January 12th is when it's. Great. So January 12th, but you can pre-order it now. Um, And Michael, thanks for doing this interview. This was an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed this, Jeff. Great. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.